0: on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: Moving ahead here, our first speaker this weekend, Bojidar Marinov. He's a reformed missionary to his native Bulgaria. He translates and publishes reformed literature into Bulgarian He started Bulgarian Reformation Ministries in 2001 with the purpose of building the intellectual foundation for the future civilization, Christian civilization in Bulgaria. So far he and his team of translators have translated 35,000 plus pages of literature and have published them out online for free. Many of these translations have been published in book format as well. He and his wife Maggie and their three children were the first Christian homeschooling family in Bulgaria and have worked to convince, train, and help other Bulgarian Christian families homeschool their children as well. As of now, there are reportedly several hundred homeschooling families in Bulgaria. And as a result of their efforts, the laws in Bulgaria have been changing in favor of homeschooling. He has worked as well with the libertarian movement in Bulgaria and was co-founder and the first chairman of the Bulgarian Society for Individual Liberty. He was a speaker to many Christian and Libertarian conferences. On his weekly podcast, Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, he speaks on the practical and tactical application of the gospel of Jesus Christ to changing the culture and building a Christian civilization. Can we get excited about building a Christian civilization? There is no other civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you, and please join me in welcoming Bojar Marinoff.
2: I'm really excited to be here, especially seeing uh, old friends and uh, meeting, you know, friends that I've had online and never met in person, which was really exciting uh, for me. Hopefully for them as well. Uh, (laughs) uh, I want to, before I start, I want to dedicate those two lectures to two men that probably none of y'all knows. And, uh, and I'll tell you the reason why. The two names are Matt Gonella and Chad Nicholas, and I know you've never heard those names. Uh, these guys are ministers of Christ in the far north of the United States, a very far north, too far north for me as a Texan, in, uh, <coughs> in Maine. In, uh, they live so far north that the conditions are so harsh that nothing grows there except for tough men who need to deal with the conditions and tougher women who need to deal with the conditions and with their man. And Matt and Chad invited me earlier this year and they heard a preliminary version of what we're going to be talking today and tomorrow, turning your church into a culture. And uh, uh, they've been very patient with me. Actually they live so far north that the only way I could get there was in a small Cessna Uh, and we were flying over the snows and a a 25-year, 28-year-old girl was, uh, was piloting that Cessna over the snows of the North. And I just came from Houston, which had at the time the temperatures were like 85 or something. So, imagine what experience it was for me. But they asked me after that it turned out that they didn't have a... that their video didn't work well and they were asking me to send them at least an, uh, an outline of the lecture and it. I kind of it and it about it and I didn't do it. So, uh, but now they have the full lecture, the full nine yards dedicated to them. So Matt and Chad, if you're listening to this lecture, this is for you and thank you guys for your patience. <coughs> now, we all know that historical trends matter. They don't matter as ultimately as the Word of God does. After all, we don't base our interpretations of things on historical trends, we base base them on the Word of God. Nothing can replace scripture as a source and base of interpretation, but on the other hand, on the other hand, historical trends give us insight into certain truths of scripture, which we wouldn't be able to understand without a historical context in which they are applied. The disciples of Jesus Christ stayed with their master for three and a half years and yet could not grasp much of what he was saying at the time. I mean, can you imagine being for three and a half years with Jesus Christ and that's one and a half year more than you stay at a seminary? And they couldn't grasp most of the truths he told them. Strange, you know. All he was doing is applying Old Testament scripture to himself. And they should have been familiar with that Old Testament scripture because that's all that they had known from their early age. They should have known the meaning of what he was quoting. And yet, even their teachers had no idea how to interpret some of the passages they had read and discussed for hundreds of years. The rabbis didn't even know what these passages meant. The Magi came to Jerusalem to look for the king of the Jews and all the learned heads among the Jews were confused. Uh, What are they saying? Finally, they could come up with an interpretation of of some detail um, in in the Old Testament, namely that the king would be born in Bethlehem, but but that was all. They couldn't even recognize the king. And all that the Old Testament did was prophesy about that king, and they were spending hundreds of years trying to figure out who the king was going to be. In terms of overall Understanding they completely failed to get the time, the nature of the king's appearance, or of his ministry. For his disciples, it took some practical, historical events to grasp what he was saying and what was happening. Like his death on the cross, for example. Even then, they still had to grow in understanding through the things that were happening to them. Or rather, through the historical experience God was sending uh, their way. Not that they couldn't learn it from scripture, it was plain in scripture. But God has chosen that our practical knowledge of application of biblical truths would come from experience. That is from events in time, in history, on earth, so that we're not like Greek philosophers living in an ivory tower, but that our knowledge is always practical and applied. History and historical trends are a great tutor. History, of course, can become an idol. And we're often tempted to rely on it much more than God allows. The Hebrews of old fell in that trap more than once. They took the brass serpent Moses raised in the wilderness as the focus of their faith in the God who heals and later made what of it? An idol. Second Kings 18.4. The Pharisees in Jesus' time reinterpreted history not as uh, the story of God's redemption and justice for the world, but as the history of God's obligation to keep national Israel a privileged nation. That's what, they, that's what they thought it was. The way dispensationalists today interpret it. Even the good, redemptive, positive events and facts of history can later become a trap and a snare witness the obsession of so many reformed today with their confessions of 400 years ago and I'm a confessional Christian don't get me wrong even though those same confessions say that traditions of men should not be made the standard for truth only a helpful tool for understanding it the past is good to be remembered but dangerous to be reenacted in a nostalgical fashion its past It ain't coming back. Paul's words in Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward, apply not only to us as individuals, they apply to the church as well. But still, historical trends matter. In one of the main ways they help us, they reveal to us the judgment of God in action. Think of a business. The owner of that business may have read all the right books for making business. He may have applied all the right principles to his work. That is, he may have been faithful to the word of business success to the T, or think he has applied them. And yet he needs a real historical trend. Real growth or real bankruptcy, right? To know for sure if he has applied them well or not. It is not the work at the beginning that tells him he has done a good job. It is the checks cashed at the end of the day that tell him he has has done a good job or a bad job. In theological terms, especially in terms of covenant theology, we call this covenant sanctions. The moral or spiritual validity of a job, and I mean moral and spiritual validity of any kind of job, Including a business or manufacturing undertaking, an education enterprise, a scientific research, uh, a relational or organizational effort, etc., is always confirmed by its fruit at the end of the day. Well, sometimes, depending on whether the effort is long-term or short-term, it may be at the end of the month, it may be at the end of the year, maybe at the end of 10 years, no matter how long it is, it has to show some fruit. A fig tree that shows no fruit at the end when it, when it matters. Will eventually get what? Cursed by the Lord and will wither. No use to let it keep sucking life from earth and waste it on leaves and branches without fruit. A servant who has buried his talent and has not produced any increase, even the meager increase from a savings bank account, bank account as Jesus said, is going to be cursed and thrown into the outer darkness because he is useless and unprofitable. In the same way in the final account, any enterprise that doesn't produce fruit within the time period it was supposed to produce fruit is cursed and will be cursed even more. And businessmen know this very well. Thus, when we see our own enterprise not producing fruit, our job is to stop and think seriously about it. There's something we have missed. There's something we need to change. Sometimes it may require just a few small changes. Sometimes, however, it may require a total wiping out the slate and starting over again. I'm here to talk of a historical trend that has been unfolding right in front of our eyes. A historical trend that Wiz Reformed Christians should have paid attention to long ago and act accordingly, especially in this country. But we haven't. We have continued business as usual. We have continued to act as if all we need to do is just do some small changes. All we have done is think that things have not developed the way we expected them to develop because we just never had the right people, you know, especially in position of authority. Ironically, the same complaint communists used in. Eastern Europe. About communism. It's a good system. We just was not, it was, was not applied by the right people. And we hear that from reformed people in America today. We have had our own system fail over and over and over again. We have watched it fail over and over and over again. We have done nothing about it except to say that we just need to continue doing the same thing over and over and over again. Or that someone else must take the blame for our failures. Or that maybe the situation is not that bad. After all, over short periods of time, the things don't seem to go down so bad. I mean, the church is not so bad between now and last week. I must be good. And in long term, well, long term we're all dead. Well, we don't say that. We really don't say that. But we act that way. We have sat complacently watching how the world, or at least our own nation, has gone, has gone down around us, down the drain. And we have admitted as much as, and yet we have not had the dignity and the courage to admit that if judgment begins from the house of God, always then all that is happening around us is a judgment primarily on us. For we are those who pride the most in having the rightest of all the rightest ideologies and theologies, knowing the word of God better than anyone else and applying it better than anyone else. We reformed Christians. And worst of all, We have tolerated fake leaders and ministers who have told us that everything is okay. We just need a little bit more of the same thing or even worse, we aren't gonna get things better anyway, at least not in the near future. And thus, we should just legitimize the curse on us and go with it and learn to go with it and teach our kids to go with it. That's what we've done. Let's be honest to ourselves. The trend I'm talking about is the loss of cultural influence of Reformed Christianity in America. Mainly Presbyterianism, but all other Reformed groups as well. If you're a Reformed Baptist, you're not getting off the hook. Living through our days and years today, it's often hard to grasp how sharp the fall has been for the Reformed churches in the United States. I mean, yes, we all know that Christians were culturally dominant in the time of the American Revolution. Yes, we all know that Christianity was the dominant paradigm in the work of abolition and during the Civil War, specifically in the South, of course, because we all view the North as the heathen aggressor, which has a point to it, but it's not entirely true. Yes, we all at times quote the decision of the Supreme Court in 1892 in Trinity uh, versus, uh, uh, versus the United States that this nation is a Christian nation, given ironically in an immigration case in which the court struck down immigration restrictions as not only unconstitutional but also contradicting the very Christian character of our nation. I'm digressing here. What an irony. Yes, we all agree that there has been a fall, but few of us realize how sharp the fall has been today. The truth is, Reformed Christianity, specifically Presbyterianism, but again everybody else, has been the dominant cultural factor in the United States until very recently. Yes, even in New York City, which today is considered by most Christians in America as one of the seats of the devil, almost. Rushduny mentioned in one of his lectures the complaint of the Roman Catholic Bishop of New York City that Irish immigrants lose their Roman Catholic faith and become Presbyterians because Presbyterians controlled the city. And could, and, and, and could find the immigrants jobs and help them establish immediately. And this was the early 1900s, just a hundred years ago. The mighty Tammany Hall, Irish and Roman Catholic, which for decades had controlled the politics of New York City, that's the corrupt organization that gave us professional police since the early 1840s fell politically you know for what because of what anybody knows two sermons by a humble lowly Presbyterian pastor two sermons by Presbyterian pastor Charles Henry Parkhurst That's how influential we were. We could topple down mighty rulers in this country. When Jay Gresham Machen was kicked out of the PCUSA or left PCUSA, I don't know however you want to uh, interpret it, this was national news and made the headlines of the major newspapers. So important a factor was the Presbyterian Church in the society and the culture. That was in the 1930s. Other denominations were not far behind. In the Battle of Athens in 1946, and of which battle y'all should know uh, if you value the real American tradition of dealing with corrupt government and what is a true submission to authority, it was a Methodist minister who took charge of the town after the sheriff's department was dispersed to provide for the maintenance of order in the town. A Methodist minister. Baptists were not far behind. Well, they first distilled bourbon in the early years, we, we know, then after Mr. Welch's skillful campaign for pasteurized grape juice, made bourbon county a dry county, but we'll leave this as an inside joke. In many places west of the Mississippi River, the local Baptist churches were the only source of community cohesion. And that was true even into the 1950s when most of rural America had no police forces and not even county governments. If you wanted to know who ruled the local county, you had to go to the local Baptist pastor in many places. And stop and think about it. All these were only about two generations ago, if we count a biblical generation of 40 years. There are people living today who were born and raised in this culture. There are pastors today who were born and raised in this culture, by the way. Pastors. This is not historical memory, folks. This is direct, personal memory for a lot of people today. It is as direct as the memory of World War II. We we have all seen videos and perhaps have met personally World World War II veterans. Same with those times of reformed cultural dominance. We have all met veterans of those times, except that, unlike World War II, no one really knows there were such times. Why don't we? My guess is our pastors today have deliberately made us forget them. They have not taught us about them. Maybe they didn't know about them. The seminaries have not told them about them. And in general, <clears throat> the elite of the ministry industrial complex have not taught anybody about them. A blind spot has been created in our thinking. And we have accepted it as, an, as normative, after all, most of us don't really go deep, deep in history to find out what the situation has really been. We all kind of believe that the current situation has been around forever. Well perhaps things were a little better, but not that much. Why have we been deceived? Because if we knew the truth, it would become obvious to us <coughs> that for the last two generations, Reformed churches in America, and I want you to hear this very well, have become the perfect example of savorless, tasteless salt. Of which Jesus spoke in Matthew 5.13 and Luke 14.35. In only two generations Reformed Christianity in this country went from being the dominant cultural factor of influence to being a peripheral sect, unnoticed even by its enemies. In only two generations. Seriously, folks. In the 1930s, J. Gresham Machin's leaving the PCUSA was a news of national significance. To compare, in the last one decade, a number of corruption scandals within the Reformed churches, including one with the grandson of Billy Graham himself, was barely noticed by the media. And the atheists didn't even pay attention to it. I specifically started looking to see if there is any atheist media that will take Billy Graham's grandson's sexual scandal and and, and make it news, make it the headlines. Nobody even paid attention to it. They didn't care. We've become so insignificant, so self-castrated, so fruitless, irrelevant, even our enemies don't care about us anymore. They did care about Union North however, but that's a different story. Not only we don't call the tune anymore, we're completely voiceless, or as some Bulgarians would say, (laughs) we have become completely dumb. And you take this word in, in in any meaning you want. We're not on the market. I'm not talking only about the Christian reconstruction. I'm talking about all who claim to be reformed, even those who like MacArthur and Moeller and all the supposedly reformed seminaries and the whole supposedly reformed sector of the ministry industrial complex raking in hundreds of millions of dollars a year for doing the work of the ministry supposedly. All this for all the resources we have burnt on these ministries we're still invisible to the society around us. And it is not in a nation that has never had reformed Christianity in its history like China or Bulgaria or Ghana. This it's in the very United States, established by the blood and sweat of reformed Christians and dominated until ju- just two generations ago by reformed Christian presuppositions. This is not an example, if this is not an example of salt thrown out to be trampled by a man, I don't know what it is. I don't know of any other example of, in history of a dominant ideology going to the dustbin of history in such a short time without political or military defeat. <clears throat> True, Nazism and communism went down much faster, but then again, Nazism suffered a gigantic military defeat which killed off all of its leaders and ideologists. Communism suffered a political defeat which, in, a global and strategic, in global and strategic significance, rivaled the military defeat of the Nazis. And in any case, both ideologies have been dominant, uh, have not been dominant for too long in their geographical boundaries. only 70 years for communism in, in the Soviet Union and 12 years for Nazism. But reformed Christianity, it had not only been dominant for a long time, it founded its na- this nation. It was at the bottom of its war for independence. It was, for crying out loud, the only truly consistent and coherent ideological system in the English-speaking world for 400 years. And there were no political nor military defeats, not even discontinuities to which one can point and say, this here destroyed our cultural dominance. It all went down peacefully, gradually, and quickly. And now we look around and guess what? The world that our forebears in the faith created and kept and fought for and bled for for 400 years is suddenly lost to us. How but it's worse than that. If you continue digging, look at yourselves in this assembly. How many of us come from reformed homes? How many can trace your family lineage back to reformed believers of earlier times? I'll tell you from my observations, if I'm wrong, correct me. Very few. There has been much talk lately of a Calvinist renewal or even revival. Maybe there is. I don't know. I'm not sure there is. But let's say there is. What is largely missed is that most of this renewal or revival comes from young folks who come from non-reformed homes, not even from Christian homes. Where are the kids of the old Reformed folks? Presbyterian and Baptist. Either gone theological liberal or apostatized, which is the same. Not only have the Reformed churches lost the culture, they have lost their own churches as well face the reality modern reformed churches Presbyterian Baptist Congregational Episcopal are dead for all practical purposes and have been dead for many decades. It's not just a loss of culture it's the loss of the churches and the people themselves in only two generations and let me get ahead of myself and here and state the obvious if they lost both the culture and their kids with 400 years of history behind them we with less than one generation of history behind us, we'll never recover the culture and lose our kids as well. Do I have your attention now? This, folks, is what being thrown out and trampled by men means, if you ever wondered. To have been the salt of every spiritual and intellectual meal in the culture, the indispensable ingredient of all public discourse, sitting on the table in a beautiful white or crystal bowl and everyone asks for you and yet in only two generations become saltless and thrown out and trampled, scratch that, not even noticed and remembered. They don't even stomp on us anymore because they can't see us. If we were a company on the New York Stock Exchange, we would be bankrupt long ago. Or better, our shareholders would have demanded a full revision of all the practices of the company, purging all the old managers from their positions, a full inventory of the assets and liabilities, of the principles of management, principles of doing business, of the sales department, of the production department, quality and and so on and so on. Nothing less would satisfy them because anything less than that would mean continuing the decline And going deeper into bankruptcy. Except that when it comes to a company, the decline can't be sustained. And that's why the shareholders need to act quick. When it's about a religious organization like our churches, the dead body can still be supported by the donations of men who work outside the dead body. In a world that is productive and faithful. And mark that, and it's a life. Unlike our churches. Compared to the dead body. When you have the, uh, you know, the of having other people's money, you can still support a dead body. Of course, many of them don't realize they're supporting a dead body. Others do, but they believe in some miracle of resurrection of the same system within the same body. But those of us who understand the covenant realities of God's history know well that this is not going to work. What is needed is a total reassessment in terms of the Bible. And when I say total, I mean total. Every single idea about everything. We need to reassess our theology. I don't mean we need to deviate from the historic orthodox concepts of the triune God and his work in redemption and restoration of the world in and through Jesus Christ. That much has been proven to be biblical and has worked in history. But along with our historic orthodox theology, we have allowed non-orthodox ideas and doctrines and practices and some of them outright heresies as well. To creep in, specifically in areas of applied theology. In some areas we have not sunk into heresies or non-orthodoxy, but we have adopted erroneous ideas which have proven in practice to be wrong and can be proven in theory to flow from a rather pagan view of reality. We have to reassess our concepts of leadership and service. Our concepts of submission and authority our concepts even of what Biblical civil government is. And we need to reassess our kids education, its foundation and its focus. We need to reassess history and how we view, we view historical events. For example, you all know of Joel McDermott's study in the history of American slavery and the church. As one example that I can give you and there are many more. We need to reassess our views of applied justice and righteousness. Our involvement with practical justice and righteousness. And one example would be what AHA is doing. Our involvement with practical justice and righteousness. With all this we need to find the sacred cows we have been worshipping which worship has prevented us from taking back what by right and sovereign redemption belongs to us Christians as Paul says in 1 Corinthians three twenty-one through 22 radical times require radical actions and such a radical fall from cultural dominance is radical times and it requires A radical reassessment of everything we believe and do. And if we don't do such radical reassessment based on the Bible, we're not serious about our task of Christian Reconstruction. And now we'll get myself in trouble. We need to also, (laughs) ready to throw tomatoes, we need to also reassess how we do church. that sacred cow too. We need to reassess the nature and the function of the church. We need to reassess the function and purpose of church government. We need to reassess the nature of authority in the church and the nature of our submission to authority. We need to reassess the place of the institutional church in the kingdom and its relation to the kingdom. Its utility and any pastor will, be, will throw something at me, and the standards for its performance, pastors don't like that, well some do. We also need to introduce, ready with the tomatoes, standards for when the institutional church is not performing and therefore needs to be discarded. We need to establish the relation of the institutional church to the greatest and foundational of all human governments—self-governor, self-government. Something we have never done in the last 100 years. You want to argue with me about it? Find how many sermons there are on sermon audio on the fundamental doctrine of the Reformation—the right and duty of private judgment. You know how many? zero. And I bet that in this room here there's not a single person that has ever heard his pastor speak about the right and duty of private judgment, the doctrine which started the Reformation. If I'm wrong, I'll buy a beer to the, to the only guy who has ever heard such a sermon. Do we need to do all that? Yes. You don't want to lose even the little we still have left. If the reformed churches of the previous two generations lost not only the culture but their own kids and themselves too, the last thing we should do is take by default any of their beliefs and practices. That's the last thing we should do. And expect different results. There needs to be a revision of all we thought was given and only leave that that which can be directly defended from Scripture, nothing else. And if you want to feel better about it and soothe your traditionally and conservatively reformed heart, which longs for a stagnant world in which we never have to nor can outgrow the Westminster Confession or the Second Baptist Confession or the 39 Articles, Accepted as the principle of semper reformanda, always reformed once forever, right? No, always reforming applied to the church. Nothing more than that. For the last several years, ever since I started writing, I have been asked the same question: How do we reform or reconstruct the church? My answer has always been, I don't know, because I really didn't. I had no idea what we needed to do. It was a sacred cow that nobody wanted to touch. A few people only talked about it. A few people, a few people, kind of, kind of, uh, uh, made uh, little steps outside the established boundaries of the ministry-industrial complex. But nobody really came up with any systematic idea, so I didn't know. I had glimpses of what it was supposed to be. My teachers, R.J. Rushton and Gary North, had said a few things here and there. But for all my respect for these men, and I believe they're the best thing that has happened to the church in the last two centuries, I couldn't see a fully developed systematic answer in their writings. Some of what they said was simply endorsing the same institutional system. Just do it better or use the tools within the system, which I come from a communist country. <laughs> that principle don't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. Some of it was suggesting individual radical changes, both Russian and North did. But the unifying principle was not there. And again, it hurts to have to, have to admit it. I also imagine different scenarios, like just as some people today imagine them in their honest but often misguided, research, misguided search for a reformation in the church, like layman's churches, or an inside revolution within the denominational hierarchy, haha, <laughs> as if that ever happened or pastors who are financially independent of the churches or denominations, or starting new seminaries, none of this, of course, is going to happen. And even if it were to happen, it won't work. Why? Because ideas have consequences, okay? And any project based on the same ideas will inevitably produce the same consequences. Thus, unless we radically change our ideas of how we do church, Reformation is not going to come and all we're going to do with all our effort is to reproduce the same system over and over again and let me continue the same system that has brought us to this current condition. What I'm going to present in this lecture and the lecture tomorrow is my ideas of what needs to be changed in our view of the church. I think I now have the answer or the beginning of the answer I should say. A biblical answer supported by historical examples that have produced success. It's not necessarily being uh, uh, systematized in history, but I'm gonna try to systematize different parts and portions of what I've seen in the Bible and what I've seen in history. Two lectures are too short time to develop a full case and, and to be honest I'm at the very beginning of my study my studies into it. But this is a start. I pray and hope that I will be able to develop it, but also, and more, that others will be able to develop it to the point where we're able to deal with the curse our churches are experiencing today. The answer to the Reformation of the Church, I believe, can be summarized in the following sentence. The Church must be turned into a culture. I know, it sounds trivial and rather vague. We actually had that solution in the Westminster Confession itself where the church was defined not as the institutional church but as the visible church which is Catholic and local, right? No, universal. That's the visible church. Consists of what? Of all those pastors and sessions and seminaries and the ministries and so on. No. Of all those who throughout the world confess the true religion and their children. And then there is a sentence that is a little bit vague. And I I would disagree with the way it is said. But it also gives us the clue in the Westminster Confession. They had a little clue and maybe they did something about it. It is the kingdom of God. Now I disagree that the kingdom of God is limited to the church it's much broader than the church But the fact that they thought that the church is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God in the view of our reformed of our reformed uh, ancestors was a culture was a civilization they were telling us that the church is First and foremost, a culture, a civilization. <clears throat> I have been made aware of this problem many years ago. I never thought in it in terms of, uh, in the terms I do today. In the terms of the church is supposed to be a culture. We have made our churches follow the pattern of the temple in the Old Testament, <clears throat> a specialized institution with specialized clergy. Specialized in dispensing religious experience once a week or three times a week if you have a hyperactive pastor and the elders' wives are public school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> ritual motions decide to please God and manipulate Him to bless this congregation. You know, uh, and by ritual motions, I speak even of the sermons and, and uh, stuff that people usually don't look at as ritual motions. You know, we know ritual motion is to kneel and to, and to be on your feet and to make all kind of acrobatic stuff, you know, and, and they're in the church. Or whatever you do. But ritual motions are also reading of the Bible. Sometimes just reading of the Bible is just empty. Nobody's listening to it. Let's be honest. People say, what, what, what did you learn in, in your sermon today? And I, I want to ask, what verses were read in the church today? And you will see that many people don't remember them. Catch them on the way out and ask them. They won't remember it. No place for the individual because the individual is absorbed in the collectivism of that big ritual of the temple. No focus on justice and righteousness. No system of rewards. No, no idea of historical sanctions, covenant sanctions, of historical predictability. The temple, folks, was never supposed and never meant to change It was supposed to stay the same forever. Nor to ever ever lead any movement to change history. The temple was not supposed to change. It was supposed to be a static symbol of God's immutability. But the church is not supposed to be that. And when we make our churches to be uh, to, to, to be patterned after the temple, we're setting up ourselves to historical irrelevance because God is around us changing history, and our churches will never change. That's why the temple eventually was taken up to heaven, and that's where the real temple is, because heaven never changes, but earth does and we do and God is changing the conditions around us expecting us to apply our faith to the conditions in the world around us the church is supposed to be the synagogue. It was not a religious institution it was a culture. J. H. Bavink, in his book Introduction to the Science of Missions <laughs> it's a Dutch Reformed theological book so Keep in mind, it's a, it's a, a boring book. <laughs> and it has sentences longer than, than pages. But it has a beautiful chapter in it. And he has a beautiful insight that missions did not start with Paul. They started with Moses. And he talks about the the, 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 uh, synagogues in uh, uh, the nature of the Jewish missions in the Roman Empire between 1st century BC and 1st century AD. They were not temples. They were not supposed to be the temple. They were not supposed to reenact the temple. They were a comprehensive culture that encompassed the life of the believer completely. Not everyone had visited the temple, but everyone at the time had been in a synagogue. A Jew or a proselyte had sat in judgment with the elders, had sought and taken their advice on practical issues. Every man had sat in the synagogue listening to the law being read. And by the way, the law is not some useless seminary lecture on abstract issues. And that law talked on every single issue they had to deal with, every single practical issue, from comprehensive worldview down to practical justice in their everyday lives, in everyday business dealings and so on. Business and entertainment, family relations, education, justice, future welfare, everything was contained within the synagogue. Not in the building, but in the community which gathered there. The synagogue was not the temple, it was specifically designed to not be the temple. Because it had to change all the time. It did not recreate any ritual motions. It was all deliberately non ritual, but judicial and economic. In fact, That's why the pagans looked at the Jews and the Christians after them and called them atheists, not because they didn't believe in a God, but because they didn't have all the ritual motions that pagans thought were necessary to please the gods. And obviously, if you don't have motions to please the gods, you don't have gods. And what are these gods that don't need pleasing? The synagogue was the Levite inside your gates, of which the law spoke about, except that because of the evolution of the Jewish community, the Levites were now to be rabbis, because the economy had changed. Again, the synagogue has changed over time. But it still applied the same truths. They had to take care of the education of the community in a different way than what they had in Moses' time. But the synagogue was not even the rabbis. Not even the elders. The synagogue was a culture. It was a world of its own. It was a civilization. It was the culture for all Jews and proselytes. It was their whole world and they did not need any world outside it. What do you think that produced? Within just a century, between Julius Caesar and Nero, right before the beginning of the Jewish war, the Jews, the Jews increased in numbers to become one-fifth of the population of the empire. We today look at them as if the Jews were just a small, little piece of the empire. The truth is, they were one-fifth of the population of the empire. One of the biggest cities in the empire, Alexandria, was built by Alexander the Great to be divided in four quarters. And today we use the word quarter for part of town, right? That comes from those old times when the cities were built to be cut in four. You know, so one quarter was one quarter of, of a town. Okay? And one of those quarters was the Jewish quarter. And Alexandria was not the only city that had that. So in the cities, the Jews were one-fourth of the population. And in the whole empire, they were one-fifth of the population. More Jews lived in the cities than they lived in the countryside. They know where the money is. And within only 100 years, the the Jews increased in numbers to become one of the largest cultural factor in the empire. To the point of you can go to a pagan city, and what happens in the Jewish synagogue was a defining factor for what's happening in the city. That's how successful they were. God had different plans for them because they had different plans for God. But still, remember, Jewish missions succeeded because they did not have churches, they had little cultures. That's where I want to take you all with these two lectures. Remember, this is only the beginning. We'll all have to continue from here, not take this as the final word in written canon. There will be gaps in what I will say today and tomorrow. We'll start to, in, in this lecture and we'll continue tomorrow with all the points that I think we need to make. We, we all will have to work to fill those gaps, and I, I invite any kind of input that you all can give me. And I will gladly take the backstage if somebody comes up and gives a better idea how this has to be done. But the main thing we need to understand is there's only one way for us to regain the culture, and this is build our churches into a culture, into an alternative culture, which make the people forget the world outside the church, because there will be no world outside the church. That will be worth even paying attention. The first point I want to talk about is make your church a place of learning and knowledge, not a place of ritual motions. It is not for nothing that Calvin started his institutes with what? Anybody remembers? The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. The importance of a complete knowledge of God and complete knowledge of ourselves cannot be overestimated, especially in our Reformed worldview. We know that having a fragmented view of reality is a curse on the brain of a person. We know that from Van Til. Cornelius Van Til spoke about it, and he spoke about the fact that sin has noetic effect. What is noetic effect? Sin has an effect on our brain on the the way we think, the way we uh, understand reality. And what sin does is make us fragment reality into different little pieces and actually have different areas of that reality require different systems of thought and action. When I worked with the gypsies in Bulgaria, with several gypsy churches, that was very obvious with them. They had such a fragmented view of reality that, they, that the different areas of the world require different systems of thought and action. They would have one principle of, of, of thought and action for one area, another principle for another area, for their family. They had a law that only applied to their own community, but didn't apply to the communities outside. So the way a gypsy would treat the gypsy would be under one law, and the way a gypsy would treat somebody outside, the community will be another way. And today it's, 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 it's everywhere. In fact, our American church today is has that gypsy mentality all the way. There is not one overall coherent, all-encompassing principle that governs all of reality. And we as Reformed Christians know from 400, 500 years ago that this is a curse. So why are we in such a, in such a state if we have all these great books? Because the current st- status of the pul- pulpit the pulpit in our American churches today has become a perpetual kindergarten. Amen. It has become driven by an ideology that says that whatever comes from the pulpit should appeal and should cater to the lowest common denominator in the church. means if I have, every time I talk to pastors and I say, why don't you... Why don't you say something? Give a, 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 a rather your meatier, meatier sermon. I mean, it's, it's all milk. And he said, Well, I got people in my church that are still immature. So what? So you're always going to cater to those that are immature. What about the people that, that need meat? The lowest common denominator is so much everywhere, even our seminaries work that way. You go to a seminary and you hear the same milk. The same milk comes from our ministries, the same milk comes from, from even from, uh, you listen to podcasts, you listen to, uh, you read books, and they're all the same milk over and over and over again. Not only that, we have continued deeper and deeper into what Rashtani calls studied irrelevance. Self-conscious studied irrelevance of the pulpit. So the pulpit is always a place where, where you speak about things that never, ever, ever touch the real world around you. And especially issues of justice and righteousness. Because you know, you touch issues of justice and righteousness and you may have some donor <laughs> that is really affected by those issues and, of justice and righteousness and you'll have, and that donor is going to redirect his money somewhere else. Right? And maybe more donors. Thus, the pulpits have become committed to limited knowledge and limited worldview. Oh, I can't speak on those issues. They don't have anything to do with the gospel. An American missionary in Bulgaria, whom I met many years ago, and I asked him, "Why don't you teach your people about what the Bible? I mean, stop with this nonsense about uh, uh, supralapsarianism or infra, uh, whatever stupidarianism, and, and, and I don't know what else. <laughs> teach them about civil government, taxes, entrepreneurship, and so on." He said, "No, this has nothing to do with with the gospel." These things that they can they can learn from the university, I'm supposed to give them the gospel and teach them about the love of God. (laughs) So you got a degree in theology like doctor's degree in theology to teach them about the love of God. I said we have here in Bulgaria old ladies that have been through persecutions. You think you know better than them what the love of God is? The ritual motions of prayer, sermons, announcements, sacraments have become the main thing the pulpit is preoccupied with. And the pastors have become specialists in, 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 in administering those ritual motions. And I'm talking even about the sacraments. Come on, sacraments today mean nothing in the churches. And don't argue with me, I know it. I've been through them. People just go through the motions, yeah, and you repeat every week, you repeat the same thing over and over again about sacraments and they go, yep, they go through it. It means nothing to them. No real community in the churches, because communion of the saints is not what you eat. This is only, you're a reformed person. This is only the symbol of communion. The, real, the communion you take in the church, the Lord's Supper you take in the church relates to communion, to real communion, to the real communion of the saints in the same way that pictures of food relate to real food. It's not that food that you take there that is the communion. It is the communion outside of that food. That's only a symbol. And if you're a Reformed Christian, you should know that. And not make an idol out of the symbol. Community is only created, and community is only created by mutual learning. That means people need to sit down together and do mutual learning. And when the basic stuff of mutual learning is always just repeated from the pulpit, there is no place for mutual, mutual teaching and learning because it is left to professionals to deliver it from the pulpit. It's not left to us to talk to each other about it. No point in just repeating what the professional says every week anyway in the same sermon every week on different verses. The complaints about the parachurch ministries today are also quite moot. I mean, every pastor, well, not every pastor, but most pastors I hear complain about parachurch ministry. We shouldn't have parachurch ministries. Wait a minute, they provide what your pulpit should have provided, but has not. They provide intellectual and moral coherence where the pulpits have failed to provide it. If it wasn't for the parachurch ministries, we would have lost even more of our people. I even know a pastor who admitted if it wasn't for his son getting involved in the parachurch ministry of abolitionism, he would have lost his son. I'm serious. And he says it. And he's honest. i and mean, I appreciate the fact that he's honest. But what does that tell tell you about his church and his pulpit? would have lost a lot of our kids to the world system, and especially to the universities. But let's talk about universities, huh? Ever thought why universities are such an attraction to the hearts of men and women? It's not because of the fun there. Don't be... <laughs> Don't be deceived about the hearts of your kids. It's not because of the fun there. The kids grow tired of fun after a while. Not because of shared memories with these people, because Some people you like to share memories with, some people you don't. It's because universities supply what the pulpits don't. Intellectual cohesion. And with intellectual cohesion, inevitably, they supply moral and relational cohesion. People go to the university to learn a worldview because your pulpits have not supplied it and that worldview becomes the world for them. Their universities become their synagogues because your church hasn't become their synagogue. Ever wondered why the university is a more likely place for young men or women to get married than the church? Well, I'll tell you why. You get married to a person of the same worldview. If the church doesn't teach a comprehensive worldview but only a fragmented one, don't expect too many young people in the church to find a spouse with the same worldview in the church because there there isn't any worldview in the church. And this problem is not saved, I'm, I'm sorry, not solved by not sending your children to a university. You think it's solved there, but it's not because someone somewhere will teach your kids a comprehensive worldview. It may be the university. It may be the local political party, it may be the job they, may, they take, or the internet. Have you paid attention how many young people get married over the internet today? Yeah, reformed Christians. And I don't think it's a bad thing, given the state of our churches today. It actually, it's actually should be this way if the churches are not providing the service of comprehensive worldview. So where do we start? What comes out of the pulpit? Let me start with this, maybe a bit revolutionary for some of y'all. What comes from the pulpit must be high above the heads, even of the smartest and best prepared people in your church. If you have a central place of teaching in your church, it can't be focused on the lowest common denominator. It must be focused on the highest common denominator. No, it must be way above the highest individual denominator in the church. It must be designed so as to pull even the best of the brightest of your people up from their current condition to a better understanding of the world. And I don't care if some people will not understand what you're saying, you will help them after the sermon. Or you will create a culture helping them after the sermon. But your sermon must be from the highest point in your church. Must be the highest intellectual and moral and biblical and theological place. And must deliver the highest theological content. Always. You preach a simple sermon from your pulpit. And you have set up yourself for a failure. It is the same as the images in the Roman church. Remember the Roman argument that images were the books of the illiterate. That's what, that's, what, that's, what an argument, that's an argument that the reformers had to deal with. What did the reformers reply? The reformers reply that the people were illiterate because of the images. Modern sermons are so designed for the illiterate that they are the modern versions of images. We have made an idol out of them. Sermons must present, and they say, well, I can't can't preach a more comprehensive sermon because a lot of people will not understand it. Our answer should be, the people cannot understand it because you have never preached any sermon higher than the simplest thing. Sermons must present a comprehensive view of reality at the highest possible level. And if they're above most people's level, good. In fact, they have to be above everybody, everybody's level so that they pull people up to higher levels, not dump them down. You expect people to follow. You don't teach your kids to stay at the level of three years old because they will not understand anything better than that. You always give them more than they can handle so that they learn to handle it. Those of us who have been in the military know they always give you more than you can handle until at the the end of the day you drop dead. You just can't lift your head. That's how tired you are. And the next day you actually make it. What about teaching the simpler truths then? We can't leave the simpler truths not taught. Well, leave them to the people in the pews. Leave them to other people. Decentralized teaching. Decentralized simpler teaching. Make it a culture, make it a cultural climate in your church that people teach each other simpler truths so that you don't have to teach those those, those truths from the pulpit. Make everyone teach their brothers and teach and, and have a community teaching in your church. Those things need to be decentralized. I want to talk more about the ultimate stupidity of not letting anyone preach publicly, but ordained persons. And yes, you heard the word, I said stupidity. Nothing destroys cultural influence like such restrictions. Nothing destroys building a culture like the restriction that only ordained persons should preach publicly. And people tell me that their church doesn't allow unordained people to preach publicly. My answer is, your church deserves all the results of this stupidity. Growth in knowledge and sanctification in the culture is the result of myriads of individual, myriads means tens of thousands, if that is a <laughs> too, hard, too hard of a, uh, information, but uh, myriads, individual communications which supply the simpler truths of life taught in the most accessible way. A pulpit can never produce such teaching in a thousand years. To make a church a culture you need to create a pervasive climate of everyone teaching everyone and speaking always in the context of everyone learning, not monopolizing it from the pulpit. Such speaking is not a prerogative of a professional once a week. It is the prerogative of all the men in the church. Every day. What the professional only needs to do is to see, to teach them to see the full picture. As full as is possible for him. If he can't take them further, use lectures and sermons from others. There's nothing wrong if you're a pastor and you don't know the answer to certain questions. That's right. Even I don't know, and no, I'm just kidding, but <laughs> Just like the churches were reading Paul's letters to them. Didn't these churches have pastors? They probably did. But Paul sent these letters and the pastor said, whoa, 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 i read let Paul preach here. And here's his letter. Let's read it to the church. Read chapters of books. Assign chapters of books to your people to read. Force your young people to read and write. Press their intellectual... <laughs> Press their brains to develop an intellectual activity to the point of where they're smarter than they were last week and smarter than anybody else in the community around them. Get to be invite professional preachers to teach all kinds of subjects in the context of a biblical worldview. Not just your religious theological things like substitutionary atonement, but everything, including business. Get to be as close to being a university as you can. Supplant the university and the trade school and the parachurch ministries by putting them out of business through competition, not through condemnation. Build a library. Build the biggest library in your area. Oh, by the way, did you all know that the biggest libraries in Europe were actually libraries of churches? Oh, so somebody else did it in the past, didn't they? Did you all know that most of the missionaries in the first centuries of the church did nothing else but translate books and some of them actually created alphabets for the languages of the people they were reaching, like Cyril and Methodius, the Apostles to the Slavs, anybody heard of Cyrillic alphabet? Well that was created specifically for the purpose of bringing the gospel to these people and then they translated a whole, whole libraries in, that, in, in those languages for the people to have and they didn't even get to the mission field for a long time and their mission didn't survive. They actually both of them, Cyril and Methodius, died. So their direct mission didn't survive, but just the alphabet and the books that they translated Christianized the Slavic world. <clears throat> There's a book you need to read This phrase must become such a regular phrase in your vocabulary as a pastor and a preacher that when you don't say it in a sermon, people will wonder, what's wrong with this guy this week? By the way, I got a book for you to read. In the final account, the only way for you to start building your church into a culture is to supplant every single source of knowledge in the culture around you. Instead of being only a temple which dispenses religious experience, instead of being a place where people just go to learn just a few simple truths about the relevant things, your church needs to become the source of worldview and the source of learning and knowledge In your community around you. That is the beginning. And we will talk tomorrow about the rest of the stuff. that How you can get involved actually in the community. So that the community around you knows that there is a new alternative culture around them. And God bless you all.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended. From sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.